This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk politics in history with Sherrod Brown. Of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio. He was reelected in 2018 and won by seven points in a state that Hillary Clinton lost by eight points just two years before that. We'll ask him how he did it. And we'll also talk about why Joe Biden is the wrong candidate candidate to take on Donald Trump. D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation, will explain why the magazine has published an anti-endorsement. But first, impeachment and the Democrats. Trump Watch starts right now. Well, now we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, we want to talk about last night's Democratic debate, but I want to start with the impeachment hearings. Today seems to have been the end of witness testimony. Yesterday was a really big day with Trump's million-dollar contributor Gordon Sondland on the stand. He made headlines by saying, we followed the president's orders to pressure Ukraine to announce an investigation of the Bidens. And the we here includes the vice president, the secretary of state, the president's chief of staff, and his national security advisor. So here was a you know, a trusted lieutenant of the president who was swearing providing sworn testimony that the president was guilty of impeachable offenses. Democrats called it a John Dean moment. I wonder if that's the way you saw it. Well, it was, in a certain sense, a John Dean moment. But more than that, it, was, uh, it, it wasn't simply Trump uh, meeting his John Dean. It was Trump meeting a guy just like himself. Huh. Uh, I mean, the, the real problem for Trump is that Gordon Sondland is his doppelganger, uh, <laughs> and in, in, in the following way. I mean, he's not like other government officials. Uh, he's completely transactional in, in his view of the world. He doesn't really have any values that are clear except self-promotion and self-preservation, just like Trump. Um, you know, his, his business history is somewhat like Trump's, a, a hotel guy, uh, with no uh, apparent grasp of either history or policy, uh, just just like Trump, uh, he, you know, is spending a ton of money on uh, boosting uh, his his image uh, as uh, the the rather unimportant ambassador to the European Union, on uh, refurbishing his digs in uh, in in Brussels again, uh, just like Trump. And most important, he, he, he has no loyalty up or down uh, except to himself, again, just like uh, uh, Trump. He's, he's, he's uh, you know, I mean, uh, this, is, this is a real peril to, to Trump, that someone is in the, uh, a witness uh, is as narcissistic as, as Trump is himself, which is exactly, of course, what Trump deserves. So it's, it's, it's worse than his John Dean. It's, it's a guy who, like Trump, is only looking out for himself, and if that requires incriminating the whole chain of command up to and including Trump, uh, he, uh, he, he will do it, and in fact, he did do it. 
Very, very interesting analysis. And of course, they don't seem to be planning to send the vice president, the secretary of state, the chief of staff and the national security advisor to challenge that testimony. That's one of the reasons why we say today seems to be the end of witness testimony. There was one, the final witness today, Fiona Hill, was pretty awesome. She was the Russia expert at the National Security Council. She worked for Trump for two and a half years. You can't say that about a lot of people uh, in the White House. In in, in this White House, that is an extremely long (laughs) tenure. And in her opening statement, she warned Republicans that one of their main arguments defending Trump, that it was Ukraine that interfered with the 2016 election, not Russia. She warned them that that is actually Russian government propaganda and asked them not to participate in spreading Russian government uh, propaganda. That left them kind of stunned and confused about, well, what, what could they say then to uh, defend Trump? Um, you know, and that sort of opens a whole larger question of what can the Republicans do now? All the hearings uh, have shown something basically we already knew from the transcript of Trump's own phone call that he himself released. Yes, it's perfectly consistent with everything we know about Trump and everything all the witnesses said that Trump pressured Ukraine, offering withholding, and then promising them hundreds of millions of dollars of military aid appropriated by Congress if they would announce an investigation of the Bidens that he could use in the upcoming presidential campaign. So we know what Trump did. Uh, What is left for, you know, Devin Nunes, ranking member Nunes, we've heard him called, they seem to keep saying no quid, no quid pro quo, uh, but that doesn't really make it anymore. What can't? What? What's left for the Republicans uh, after? Well, I think there are a couple. I think there are a couple lines of argument. Uh, all of them preposterous. Uh, <laughs> one, one is that because uh, Ukraine did not go ahead and investigate the Bidens. And uh, because uh, eventually uh, the funds to Ukraine were released and, and, and sent to Ukraine, that therefore the deal didn't get consummated. So it wasn't, uh, you know, so, so the response to that should be, so what? Now, if you think about it for a minute, that is to say... Uh, yes, attempted bribery was, is the crime here. Yeah, attempted yeah, bribery. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the, the, the Constitution is uh, sufficiently uh, flexible on the definition of what an impeachable offense is. I think this, you know, if you look back at what uh, Hamilton and others who drafted the Constitution wrote, it, this, this, this clearly falls under that. So the, but that's one possible defense. Another possible defense um, is that, um, well, it doesn't rise to the level yeah, an impeachable offense because yeah. uh, the definition of an impeachable offense is somewhat flexible. Well, I mean that's a uh, a judgment call, but I mean you have to have truly impaired judgment uh, not to think that this isn't subverting uh, uh, the purpose of uh, the national government and the uh, and the uh, interest of the United States to uh, the president's own personal interest, which is not one and the same as the national interest uh, quite quite the contrary and that it you know it it doesn't violate um, fundamental norms 
of political, uh, uh, you know, of, of what we've come to be accustomed to in uh, in American politics to ask a uh, to threaten a foreign government if it doesn't investigate uh, the president's political rivals. Uh, then the third defense is, uh, you know, simply that this is uh, it doesn't even address any specifics. It's the sort of thing that. Devin Nunes uh, did when he opened uh, uh, gave an opening statement one day that simply attacked the media. Um, you know, in in, in other words, uh, not not really to address uh, the issue at hand uh, at all, but to rather uh, just just say that this is the president's enemies and they're doing this, and we're not kind of even engage in the specifics. Right. Of, right you know the, the what the president did they've always hated trump they're trying to get rid of him we this is nothing new yeah exactly um but unfortunately it actually is uh, <laughs> yes. new information uh, and it's criminal information uh now there, there, I mean, let I, me I, say I get, let me interrupt yeah. and say there's one other problem with your second potential defense which is this is not impeachable that that means they have to say well this happened <clears throat> it was it was not the right thing to happen, but it's not an impeachable offense. But Trump finds that an intolerable thing to say. His view is his phone call was perfect. And anyone perfect, who, yes. who denies that it was perfect, that there was something untoward or undesirable or, or uncertain about it, is, isn't, is going to be seen as an enemy of Trump. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look at, like, the Wall Street Journal's editorial today, where they're trying to navigate between the, this particular uh, Scylla and Charybdis, or whatever the hell uh, <laughs> the, uh, the figure of speech is, um, you know, they, they, they take the it doesn't rise to the level of impeachable offense. Uh, we can uh, pass a censure motion, mm. uh, and that would satisfy uh, everyone. Well, would it? I mean, it wouldn't satisfy Trump. I think a lot of Republicans... Uh, in in the House and the Senate, most of them wouldn't vote for a censure uh, motion either. Yeah. They are that uh, cowed by uh, right wing media by and uh, its support for Trump, and and that's what makes this different from the uh, the Nixon uh, from from Watergate. Uh, well, had, had the right wing media been around then, it's not at all apparent that. Uh, there would have been a consensus that Nixon had to go and uh, that he would have gone. You know, the fact that they're ending the hearings at this point and now will be drawing up uh, articles of impeachment based exclusively, apparently, on this Ukraine uh, history, uh, I believe, is way too narrow. Um, there are so many other terrible thing things that he's done. Why impeach him just for this one thing with the Ukraine when we know there's half a dozen other things equally bad or worse? Why do you think Nancy and Pelosi and Adam Schiff are keeping this focus so narrow and the evidence so limited? For a couple of reasons, I think. First of all, um, in, in some of the god-awful things Trump has done, uh, you you can argue that you know it requires actually a political judgment, uh, opinion judgment as to you know uh, this may be morally reprehensible, but it's not a crime. I think a they see this as the most clear example of something that's a crime. It's bribery. So that's point one. Point two is um, there's enough misgivings about letting this play out longer, and that that that's clearly I think behind. 
the uh, decision not to call any more witnesses. Uh, you know that. So uh, that is to say, uh, we've made a case on a, a simple, empirically verifiable point. That's point one. But point two, we don't want to spend more time on this. If you spend more time on this, it eats into our ability to uh, discuss other issues, which we think uh, we have a better. Uh, uh, appeal to the American people than Trump does. It it, it eats into the Democratic uh, presidential candidates' ability to uh, make a case for themselves. Um, and uh, so, what's the line uh, from uh, from Hamlet? If it were done, uh, it were best done quickly. I, I guess. <laughs> I, Hamlet I think quoted on KPFK. First time yeah, today. Well, you know, we I thank mean, you. Yeah, okay, well, you sure? I, I assume it's the first time today. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, clearly, uh, that, that's, that's what they're thinking. Now, you're right that, you know, I think historians will look at Trump and give a, a, a litany of, of immense offenses, of which this is just one, uh, but they've decided for reasons of time and reasons of uh, open and shut, closed case, uh, that this is how they want to do it. You know, there's one other reason that I wonder if you think is also in play here. Uh, just to go back to the Watergate parallel for a minute, I understand from Rick Perlstein, our expert on Watergate, that the House um, Judiciary Committee in 1974 drew up an article uh, of impeach to impeach Nixon for his secret bombing of Cambodia. But the Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee would not support that one, and they decided they would only vote on articles of impeachment to present to the Senate where there was bipartisan support in the House. I wonder if you think there's that's at all at play here. I know there's some talk that maybe Susan Collins would vote uh, to impeach Trump in the Senate trial, Mayor, maybe uh, Cory Gardner of Colorado, these people who are in, in endangered Republican seats for the Senate, maybe Martha McSally in Arizona. I've even seen that they think maybe Joni Ernst, Republican of Iowa, might vote to impeach. Do you think that's one reason why they're not uh, expanding the, the bill of, uh, of crimes? Well, uh Actually, it, it would benefit the Democrats if uh, all of them voted no. Uh, that would make them more electorally vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I don't. I don't think it's so much a case of uh, uh, concern for bipartisanship. I, I think. I, I think it's more the case in this instance that they think anyone who's actually paying attention to this. Uh, you know, is 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 going to agree with them that this is an impeachable offense, and if they get into caging kids, uh, which is certainly in in many ways the more outrageous yeah. offense, uh, that 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 then uh, is is more legally ambiguous than uh, than what he did with Ukraine. Uh, so I I don't know that that they're really looking for because it's not as if. They're going to get the two-thirds vote in the Senate in any case. Right. They know they're not. Right. So that makes uh, me argue, well, then they should go for broke and just list everything that he did that's uh, that's criminal and uh, and uh, a high crime and, and not worry about having something narrow and uh, and, and limited. Well, I, you know, I, I think then you hit the time argument. I yeah. Mean, uh, okay. Uh, assuming they want uh, to get this done uh, somewhat quickly, <laughs> that... You know that would not help get it yeah, done. Yeah, yeah. The, sc the uh, schedule now seems to be that the House will vote this 
uh, before the uh, end of, before the Christmas break, and the Senate will hold a trial uh, in January. The latest news, which is Washington from the Washington Post, just uh, in the last couple of hours, is that they would limit the impeachment trial to two weeks in the in the Senate. Bill Clinton's trial lasted; they had five weeks, I think. Uh, The Washington Post reports Trump is miserable about the ongoing impeachment inquiry and wants the Republicans in the Senate to dismiss the proceedings. But Lindsey Graham said today there are not 51 votes to dismiss it. So that's where we... Well, I mean, yeah, but there's there's another dimension to this, which is actually if the trial were to go Mm -hmm. on and on in the Senate, it would pretty much make it impossible for those Democratic presidential candidates who are senators... Uh, shall, you know, of whom there are a lot. <laughs> yes, uh, that's Bernie, right. Warren, uh, Cory uh, Booker, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Michael Bennett. Um, you know, I mean, uh, they couldn't campaign uh, uh, as Iowa and New Hampshire drew near, and maybe you know happened. So it, you know, it's it, the, the political ca- the fact that Trump wants it over quickly. I bet you. Uh, you know, uh, even Bernie and Elizabeth, for that reason, uh, wanted over quickly, too. Well, let's talk about the Democratic candidates. They appeared on stage last night in Atlanta. Um, you know, the big shocker going into this debate was that Iowa poll showing that Mayor Pete was in first place in Iowa. Uh, how did he do last night uh, up against all the other candidates? Well, he benefited from the fact that uh, he wasn't really subjected to any attacks by any of the leading candidates. In fact, uh, it was only by, you know, the, the B team, like Amy Klobuchar, or the, the D team, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who, uh, who went after him. So, I mean, it, it, I, I thought he looked a little more apprehensive last night of fearing uh, a stream of attacks. It, it, it didn't come. Um, but, you know, he, he, in, in, in the first debates, he was uh, sort of Mr. Uh, let's all get along congeniality. Then he went after uh, Warren in particular in the debate before this. Uh, and, and then in the, in the current debate, um, I, I thought he was more sort of technocratic, which is in a certain sense who he, who he actually is, referring to carbon neutral farming and things like that, which had grim echoes of, of, of Michael Dukakis, uh, uh, you know, campaigning on, on, on sort of certain technical expertise, which did not stand Michael Dukakis all that well, if memory serves. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't think he was uh, particularly effective. I also don't know, after, you know, a day of uh, revelations and Gordon Sondland and all of that, how many people were actually watching the debate or were absorbed by it? I mean, there's only so much politics in a given 24-hour, in a given 24-hour period that even even a political junkie can absorb. So, well, uh, the, I'm, but but not you and me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was one remarkable thing, as sort of a preliminary to this debate. We had four female candidates on stage and four female moderators asking questions. That's something really new in American politics. Did it make any difference? Well, actually, I think the moderators were, were pretty good. I mean, they asked, on the whole, real questions. Uh, and they weren't necessarily trying to get, uh, with a few exceptions, they weren't trying to get the candidates uh, you know, to, get in, uh, to go after each other. Uh, and they, they, I think they covered a wider terrain than uh, the previous debates have, and, and they actually brought in, for better or worse, 
I think, uh, you know, the minor candidates a little more than in uh, in previous debates as well. So I, I, I think the moderators acquitted themselves rather, you know, rather well. And, you know, I mean, look, a 10-person debate is kind of a, a, an oxymoron anyway. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. really lend itself to a debate. Last night at times it seemed more like a, a quiz, and, uh, you know, some <laughs> candidates did better than others. <laughs> And uh, how did our uh, our favorites Bernie and Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren do, in your opinion? I think Bernie is is really doing well in the debates. I mean, uh, you know, he he has a, a mode of presentation down pat, uh, and that's good and forceful. But he's also, you know, adding a little humor, a little biography, uh, uh, almost a, a touch of self consciousness that he knows he can come off as a bit of a monomaniac, uh, so he, he uh, kind of compensates for that, does that well. I think Elizabeth d- does okay. I think she occasionally, uh, I mean, w- w- what she does best when she's really on is illuminate a, uh, you know, one of her uh, policy plans with, uh, you know, w- with a human story. I, I think she kind of rushed that last night. I think the person on stage who did that best last night was Kamala Harris, who I thought returned to uh, some of her form in the first debate, which which boosted her at that point. I mean, I, you know, there's that old line about who would you rather have a beer with uh, yeah. as, as a criterion for who do you vote for. After last night, I would rather have a beer with Kamala Harris. Uh, that doesn't mean I think she's the best candidate or would be the best president. But, you know, her rather narrow claim that she would do best on the debate stage with Trump I'm I'm kind of prepared to believe that. I think she handled, uh, you know, if, if she's up to the standard she was at last night in the first debate, I think she would be uh, the most effective uh, debater against Trump. Not that that's by any means the sole determinant of being the strongest candidate, much less the best president. Now, one last thing on a, on a completely different topic. What would you think when a 73-year-old obese man under a lot of stress goes to Walter Reed Hospital unexpectedly on a Saturday afternoon and afterwards says he was there to get started on his annual physical, which is supposed to be next year in 2020. Well, you know, it does raise certain suspicions. Um, uh, We've had presidents who have concealed uh, ailments before, including the greatest president of the 20th century, Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, and uh, certainly uh, it's conceivable that the worst president of the so far rather short 21st century could be doing the same thing. We just don't know. But then, you know, getting any truth out of this White House uh, is a fool's errand. I forgot to ask you about the front runner, Joe Biden. Uh, He said one good thing last night. Credit to Joe Biden. He was pretty much the only one who said the Democrats need to win control of the Senate in order to accomplish anything. And we need a candidate who can help the Democrats add three seats, win three more seats to the Senate. He thought he's the one who can do that. Um, But, you know, all the focus on who has the best policy avoids this question of what's it going to take to pass any of these proposals. Do you think Joe Biden does have any coattails? I I think he barely has a coat. (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, I I, I don't see Biden going anywhere in this uh, this campaign. Um, He he, he just doesn't uh, come across as being uh, particularly 
capable. And uh, uh, were he not the former vice president of a very popular president, I, I, don't, I don't see uh, how he could have, you know, why he'd even be on the debate stage. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, Hillary lost Ohio, but Sherrod Brown won the state two years later. We'll ask him why in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, why Joe Biden is the wrong candidate. But first... Talking politics and history with Sherrod Brown. Of course, he's the senior senator from Ohio, first elected in 2006. He was reelected in 2018, won by seven points. And now he has a new book out. It's called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. It's an honor and a pleasure to say, Senator Sherrod Brown, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate being on. Well, your book is titled Desk 88. That's your desk on the Senate floor. The book is about the people who were seated there before you, notable progressives, including Bobby Kennedy, George McGovern, and Hugo Black. Hope we have a chance to talk about all of them. But I'd like to start at the end of Desk 88, where you talk about your own reelection in 2018. You won by seven points in a state that Hillary Clinton had lost by eight points just two years earlier. So we have a tremendously important question about that. What are the lessons of Ohio from Hillary in 2016 to you in 2018? We knew we had to win one out of seven Trump voters or something like that. And I was, I'm a progressive and I, I never compromise on gun safety. And I don't, I don't, we'll never sell out to the NRA. I don't compromise on on marriage equality. I've supported marriage equality for 20 plus years. I, I don't compromise on, on choice. Uh, and I've been my whole career strongly pro-choice, but you need, you need to talk to voters. You need to talk about the dignity of work. It means honoring and respecting all work, whether you punch a clock or swipe a badge or work for tips, whether you're raising kids or taking care of aging parents. And when I say fight for workers, I don't think just of the white male firefighter. I think of people that work as clerks in an insurance company and people that, that prepare food in cafeterias and people that work construction and people that work in small manufacturing uh, or work in an office setting. And, and if Democrats run a campaign, seeing the world through the eyes of workers and then govern that way and plan to govern that way and make that contrast with a president who has betrayed workers, this president has betrayed workers in the Middle West and betrayed our allies in the Middle East. And every day, the Democratic candidates need to talk about Trump's betrayal of workers while we talk about the dignity of work. That will peel off enough Trump voters and excite new voters enough, I think, to, to win not just my part of the country, but to build a huge electoral college majority. In your book, you also talk about the 2000 campaign 
Al Gore challenging uh, George W. Bush. Tell us about the conversation you had at the Ford plant in Avon Lake. Yeah, I was sitting around uh, just drinking coffee in the cafeteria during a during a break for the for the workers, and there are I don't know half dozen, eight nine people around, and they were all voting for Gore except one UAW member there said he was voting for Bush, and they and they so I said why, and he said well Gore wants to take my gun, and the guy next to me turned to him and he said well Sherrod has the same positions on guns as as, as Gore does. And he said, yeah, but Sherrod fights for workers and fights for us in the workplace. And I think that's the issue that, I, you know, I know I know in some smaller towns and among some people, they don't like my F from the NRA. And I know they don't like my positions on marriage equality and, and choice. But if I'm there fighting for their kids, fighting for their ability to to send their child, send their young, their, their teenager, their 18-year-old off to community college or Ohio State, or um, I'm talking about their health care if they have a pre-existing condition, in many cases, that that will be their vote determinant. We vote because this guy fights for us. And at work, this guy fights for our health insurance. This guy fights for our kids going to college or trade school. George McGovern is featured in your book. He's one of the people who occupied your desk before you arrived. Of course, he's a hero of ours. He was right about pretty much everything, especially the war in Vietnam. But he's the biggest loser in the history of modern American presidential elections. For those who don't remember 1972, when he ran against Nixon, he carried only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia when Nixon beat McGovern that year, it was really much worse than Trump beating Hillary. Hillary, of course, won the popular vote by almost 3 million votes. McGovern lost by almost 18 million votes. You worked on the McGovern campaign. You were, I guess, a teenager at the time. Tell us about that that campaign. Yeah, well, it, it was a disaster from the beginning to the end. I wasn't smart enough to know that. I thought it was a close race until they counted the votes. So what do I know at that point? But I, I, I laughed about, as you were talking, only in that uh, story in the book about McGovern sitting down with Mondale. Mondale had just lost in 84, not quite by as much, but Mondale had carried only Minnesota, his home state in Washington. And um, McGovern, McGovern was talking to Mondale soon after the 84 race. This had been 12 years since McGovern lost. And Mondale asked him, how long does it take to get over this, George? And George McGovern says, I'll let you know when I do. <laughs> and because that, that kind of loss, I mean, we can laugh now, but yeah. that kind of loss has got to be just earth shaking and shattering and scarring probably. I mean, I think McGovern was scarred by it maybe the rest of his life. I don't know. Um, he had other tragedies. I mean, his daughter died way too young. And so I'm sure he had, he had other tragedies, other problems and we all do. But that campaign, I remember the idealism of it. What McGovern had in common, as I said in the book with Goldwater, my the two things. One is my dad very improbably voted for Goldwater in 64 and voted for McGovern in 72. Not many people had that journey. Right? Wow. But the other thing they had in common is they both they both brought a lot of new people into the political system. And Tip O'Neill said dozens and dozens of House members, people serving in Congress, came out of the McGovern campaign and that was their first time really involved. And so there, there, was, there is still a positive lasting impact, even, even in a catastrophic loss. You describe union members, especially the more conservative, overwhelmingly white and male members of the building trades, voting for Nixon instead of McGovern in 72. Sounds like a foreshadowing of 
Trump in 2016. Is that fair? Yeah, it's fair, but it's it was more pronounced in McGovern. I mean, as you point out, McGovern lost by 18 million, I think was the number you said. I And, you know, Hillary won the popular vote by 3 million in large part because of your state, but nonetheless. And there is a smaller number of un- union members now, but McGovern didn't do well among union members, but did pretty badly among every segment of the population. Hillary, Hillary probably won, if you can dig down, you don't always know this, but Hillary probably won among union members. But the unions by now are much more diverse than they were in McGovern's days. I mean, even the trades, the most conservative and the probably the whitest of the unions, maybe the trades and the firefighters, even there you see a number of people of color. You see more women. There were very few women in the trades or in the big industrial unions in McGovern's day. So that really begs the question, this book, this book is, is about eight white men and everybody held, ever, ever held my desk was a man as far as we can tell from the names we can see scrawled in there or not scratched in the desk. So somebody's writing this book about the last eight senators that held it. And a few hundred years from now, somebody writes about the eight senators that held it since I do, since I have, um, I think you'll see significantly more women and people of color. And I think you'll see a more progressive Senate because if the Senate looks more like California, if the Senate looks more like um, our country overall, you'll see these progressive eras I talk about last last longer and be deeper. And that's that's only spells good for the country. Well, I think my favorite chapter in your book is the first one about Hugo Black from Alabama, elected to the Senate in 1926. He was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And this is a wonderful story about how a Klansman changed his mind and changed sides in the great battles of the 1930s. How did that happen? Well, it happened because he was mostly an opportunist. The world to black in those days, 1926, understanding that people of color were simply not voting in Alabama with maybe exceptions of you could count on your fingers and toes, if any exceptions. And he saw the world divided into groups. He called them the big mules and the little mules, and the big mules were the um, power companies, the coal companies, the electric, the, um, the steel companies, the mining companies. That was one group. The other group was the little mules, and they were they were many many clansmen in that group. And he could not have chosen the big mules, so he said. He said later, I would have chosen to join any group that helped me get votes. So he let his ambition flip itself over on its ugly racist underbelly. He did things as a young man he shouldn't have done by joining the Klan. But coming almost full circle, if you can ever put that behind you and and ever be forgiven for being a member of the worst terrorist group in American history, then he in 1956, I believe it was right after a year or two after Brown v. Board of Education, which he was involved in the unanimous decision to, to finally put the court on the side against segregation. Because he was burned in effigy at his law school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and he was a great civil libertarian. So I, you give credit for change. It's hard to forgive somebody ever that belonged to the Klan. But Black, in some ways, he may have spent. I, I didn't know him. I can't. I can't analyze him psychologically. But he may have may have spent his whole life trying to make up for that that terrible decision he made to join them. And he followed an unusual course. After he became one of the leading supporters of the New Deal in the mid-1930s, he was appointed to the Supreme Court, where he was an extremely important figure. Yeah, that's right. He was Roosevelt's, probably Roosevelt's favorite Southern senator. He, 
he had a major impact. He was always a populist, but real populism, I always contend, can't be racist. But he was a real populist in fighting for, quote, the little guy, even though it was only in his early days for the little white guy, if I could say it that way. But he helped to write the collective bargaining, the 30 to 40 hour work week. He actually introduced the bill for a 30 hour work week and he compromised it to 40. And that's what we still have. And um, that's made a huge difference in, in our economy and in worker rights and in wages. Another senator who occupied your desk before you, desk 88, was Bobby Kennedy. He was elected to the Senate from New York shortly after his older brother was assassinated. And he's another great example of someone who changed sides, although in a different way from Hugo Black. As a young man, he had worked for Joe McCarthy. And as attorney general, he's the one who approved FBI wiretaps on Martin Luther King. But that's not where he ended up in 1968. What explains his transformation? Well, again, I, I, I don't engage in psychoanalysis. I don't know, except that his brother's assassination clearly was both earth-shattering and, and, and I assume made him re-examine his values, his place in the world, all that. He had always been the, you know, the little brother, the guy that looked out for the big brother and did things for him that was the operator for all that. And then he all of a sudden is thrust into being the, the patriarch, more or less, of this family. And Ted Kennedy certainly took that role later. Um, and I think the other thing that happened is he saw peace. He was a really privileged kid, you know, well, very wealthy Irish Catholic kid from Boston that that had every advantage in life, uh, except the, you know, obviously the deaths of of two of his family members, three of his family members, I guess. But he went to Southern California and saw uh, saw farm workers. Went to Mississippi and uh, saw the poorest, maybe the poorest areas of the country, the Delta, and it really changed him. And Marion Wright Edelman tells a story when she was Marion Wright as a young Yale Law School graduate. Peter Edelman, whom she later married, came to that community with Bobby Kennedy and as Senator Kennedy in those days. And Marion didn't really much like him because she didn't like his brother's appointments to the court, John's appointments to the court. He'd, he'd appointed conservative Southern, in many cases, segregationists. She didn't expect to like Bobby, and she saw him interact with these poorest, some of the poorest, least privileged people in, in the country, and it changed her view of him. And she later married <laughs> the Kennedy's staff guy there. But um, she changed her, you know, and so Kennedy... Kennedy is a, as, as we all are, I mean, Kennedy's a complicated guy. Kennedy, Kennedy was a complicated man and in his evolution. But, but my, my wife always says that when somebody, you want somebody to change and they do, you can't keep pointing to their past. You've got to embrace that change. And I mean, working for McCarthy's pretty bad. Being a KKK member is really bad, but each of these characters, as did Al Gore senior who voted against civil rights in 64 and went down as a victim of Nixon's, um, Southern strategy and his unrelenting attacks on Gore in his 1970 race because Gore had stood up to Nixon on appointing two Southern, very conservative, maybe racist judges. And Gore, Gore lost his election over that. So one of the, the lessons here is nobody in elective office should be, everybody should be willing to lose for a principal. And I, I'm not sure how many of us are in that category. I also want to ask you about something from your own biography that you write about in the book. You were a student at Yale in May 1972 when Nixon announced the uh, mining of the Haiphong Harbor in North Vietnam. This was infuriating 
escalation of the war for those of us in the anti-war movement. You describe joining a demonstration of Yale students, but you say something about this demonstration didn't feel right. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I was, um, I mean, I was a young, I was, well, I was a college student, and I was grew up with some, more than some. I mean, I wasn't a rich kid. My dad was a family doctor and in and, and a, and a, and a good practice in a small conservative town. As I said, my dad voted for Goldwater in 64, was so repulsed by Nixon and Agnew that he changed to a Democrat in, um, eight years later. But I, more than anything, wanted to end the war. I was supporting McGovern, trying to help as an, in an anti-war campaign, presidential campaign. And I, I, I saw these students from Yale that were it surged out of their dorms when Nixon announced mining the harbors at Haiphong, escalating the war. And they marched down um, Elm Street, I believe, and there were some police officers standing behind wood horses, the, the barriers, to say to the kids, you can't go any further. And they were yelling obscenities at the police officers. And I thought, you know, I don't know why this occurred to me as this kid from Mansfield, Ohio, these police officers I knew they weren't making a lot of money. I knew perhaps some of their kids were in Vietnam or they themselves had served in Vietnam. And I knew that most of my classmates that were walking down this street demonstrating and swearing at the cops, the cops who were there to protect the property of maybe some of these kids' parents, I don't know. But these kids marching down the street, most of them would have good cushy jobs a year or two later or go to law school or med school. And most of them weren't going to go to Vietnam. So even though I supported what they wanted to do in the war, I, I didn't feel in that group. I didn't, I didn't feel of that group at that time as I had marched against the war before. It just, it just, I, I, I can't really describe it very well, but there was something, something untoward about all that. Last question. We can't let you go without asking you about the 2020 presidential election. We're one year away from election day and the New York times published a poll showing Trump basically tied with his Democratic challengers in the states that will decide the election. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. What's it going to take for the Democrats to carry most of those states? Democrats have got to start talking more about work, the dignity of work, uh, not just to talk to white male workers, some of whom might have voted for Trump, but to, but to energize young voters. There are a whole lot of people in this country that are that are people of color and women and young people who are making eight and ten and twelve dollars an hour and we've got to show as democrats we care about them we care that they're they're all working hard i mean most people in this country that are on food stamps and most of the people that gain from medicaid expansion are people working eight and ten and twelve dollars an hour they just aren't making enough money to, to get ahead and democrats have to be for them and with them to point out that trump has betrayed them trump has refused to raise the minimum wage He's taken overtime pay away from, we think, as many as 2 million Americans, 50 or 60,000 in my state alone. We know that Trump has put people on the courts that put their thumb on the scale of justice and choose corporations over workers and Wall Street over consumers. Uh, we know Trump has put in as the secretary of labor, of labor, a corporate lawyer who's made tens of millions of dollars in his life fighting against workers. And Trump says he's for workers, but you can't be for workers individually if you're not for workers collectively. And Democrats have to make that contrast. If we do, we win the industrial Midwest, including my state. Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio. His terrific new book is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. 
Thank you, Senator Brown. Thank you. What a fun interview. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, why Joe Biden is the wrong candidate to challenge Donald Trump. That's in a minute on KPFK, when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. But first... One year before Election Day, the nation has taken a position on the Democratic primary. For that, we turn to the magazine's editor, D.D. Guttenplan. He was also one of the magazine's lead correspondents covering the 2016 presidential campaign. And he's the author of the book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, instead of choosing between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, the nation at this point in the campaign did something different. Please explain. Well, you know, like a lot of uh, organizations and people on the left, we've come under a certain amount of pressure to choose between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, we've, you and I have talked and we've written before that that's not a choice we feel we need to make right now. Uh, we feel that the presence of both of them in the, in the race is great and it's widening the left lane and they're, they're each in some ways reinforcing each other's messages and uh, acting as legitimators and also just taking up air and media time discussing things like Medicare for All and a Green New Deal and forgiving student debt. So we're, we're happy with that. But we decided that, that we did need to take a stand and to weigh in on the Democratic field. And we, we wrote and published what we call an anti-endorsement, whose title pretty much explains it, against Biden. And uh, we laid out in that editorial our reasons why we think Joe Biden ought to put service to country above personal ambition and drop out of the Democratic race now. Well, Biden, of course, is called a moderate, along with Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar and Kamala Harris. Is the nation anti-endorsing them also for the same reasons as Biden? Well, you know, I don't want to use moderate as a dirty word. And in fact, in the editorial, we say that that we think whoever the nominee is, is going to need to have good answers to the kind of criticisms that Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg have been making, not that we're necessarily persuaded by them, but we we feel that they need to be addressed and answered in a way that will be persuasive to, you know, the, the American public. Because after all, what we want is a nominee who can not only win the Democratic primaries, but who can evict Donald Trump from the White House. At this point, it's not so much Biden's positions that we feel disqualify him. It's his record. And it's his record going back quite a long way, you know, not just things like happily working with segregationists to oppose school busing or his, in some ways, deeply consequential mishandling of Anita Hill's, you know, accusations of sexual harassment against Clarence Thomas or his role in, in, in ramming through the bill that led to the explosion of mass incarceration, you know, the Clinton crime bill or his opposition to measures to liberalize bankruptcy for people who are driven into bankruptcy by credit card debt. There's a lot in Biden's record not to like, but in a sense, it's not just the record. It's that as an opponent to Donald Trump, we feel that Joe Biden is a uniquely weak candidate. 
and that his presence in the race, and this is not our coinage, but it's a coinage that I have to say I, I've liked enough to steal, as a kind of zombie candidate, means he sucks oxygen and money and attention away from candidates whose positions are probably not that different from his. And, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg are, are two perfectly good examples, but who don't have uh, the record that renders them uniquely weak against Donald Trump. You know, they can, they can raise issues of corruption and uh, the, the way in which Trump puts his relatives into positions for which they're unqualified without having to then spend hours talking about Hunter Biden. Of course, some of our friends say the most important thing about Biden is that the polls show him doing better than his rivals, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, if the election were held today. The Washington Post poll, for instance, came out last week, rated A-plus by 538.com. Uh, its current finding is that Biden would beat Trump 56% to 39%, while Elizabeth Warren would beat him 55 to 40, and Bernie would beat him 55 to 41. Wouldn't it be better to beat Trump 56 to 39 than 55 to 40? <laughs> well, we both know that's a silly argument. I mean, first of all, we're a year out from the election, and year-out polls, as you know, Nate Silver would be the first to tell you, mainly register name recognition. So, you know, and Biden has been vice president for eight years, so he has a lot of name recognition. But the second thing, and this is, this is, I think, in some ways a more substantive point. Look, we at the nation definitely want a candidate who can beat Donald Trump. And that's one of the reasons why we feel that the issues debate, which in some ways is being stifled by all the attention given to Burisma and Biden and his connections to the Ukraine and his son's jobs. We feel that it would be much better to have the debate among the Democrats about the things that are going to matter in November and not about those things, which all those things do is they, they provide Republicans with talking points if Joe Biden ends up being the nominee. And if he's not the nominee, and we're pretty sure he's not going to be the nominee, then what they do is they just keep the Democrats from subjecting the field to the kind of tests that it needs to be subjected to. You know, there are, there are worthy candidates who have Joe Biden's views on a lot of the issues, but who aren't getting the oxygen because he's sucking all the oxygen up. And there are candidates of color who might be in the top tier if it weren't for the fact that, you know, Joe Biden's loyalty to Obama has uh, inspired a kind of reciprocal loyalty among African-American voters. So those are two points we think are worth thinking about. But there's something else that I want to talk about, and that's this notion of electability, because I covered the 2016 campaign for the nation. And at some point during that campaign, I wrote a piece which we never published called Is Hillary Electable? It was written in opposition to and out of irritation with the kind of mainstream view that Hillary was an ideal candidate and the, that electability was the thing that mattered most. And, you know, first of all, I never thought that was going to work. I thought that there were a lot of issues that, particularly around economic inequality and trade policy and the gutting of America's industrial infrastructure, and even on sexual harassment, where because it was Hillary, Trump was kind of immunized from having to really be accountable for his actions. And I feel like it would be, it would be terrible to repeat that mistake in 2020, and for me, unconscionable to be silent again while the Democratic Party sleepwalks into another disaster of that kind. Well, let me go back for a minute to the African-American voters you mentioned. Of course, they're the bedrock base of support for Joe Biden, who 
as you say, remember his ties to Obama. Those voters are very clear they don't want Mayor Pete. They don't seem to be very strong for Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, and they don't show much interest in Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. So how do we know who their second choice would be if Biden weren't there? I mean, I've seen some polls that say quite a lot of them, you know, list Bernie as their second choice. I see others that say that they list Cory Booker as their second choice. I think in a way it's, it's hard to get people to focus on a hypothetical, which is why I suppose the question you might ask about our editorial is why preempt the process? And, and my answer is that the process has a flaw in that there's going to be corporate money flowing to Biden for as long as he wants to stay in the race. And as long as corporate money is flowing to him, he has less incentive to drop out. But if he drops out late, if he collapses in the polls, but he doesn't collapse in the polls until February and his money dries up in February or March, Harris or more to the point Booker or Joaquin Castro may not last that long. You listed many of Biden's weaknesses, flaws, and problems. Are you saying Joe Biden is a crook? We say very clearly in the editorial that he's not a crook. But there's another piece in the same issue that talks about something called the Delaware Way. And it looks a lot like what they used to call in Tammany Hall days legal graft. In other words, none of it's illegal. There's no allegation of criminality. But it, A, doesn't look good, and B... It's a kind of reciprocal favor arrangement with corporate interests that make you a particularly weak candidate at a moment when there's popular outrage against the 1% and against the millionaire and billionaire class. Last question. When will it be time to choose between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren for The Nation magazine? Well, that's a really good question. I suppose one answer would be as we come out of Iowa and New Hampshire, and we see where they are. I mean, we we may never have to choose because one of them may be doing so much better than the other that it's obvious which one is going to be the nominee. Or if we're going into the spring and they're still going neck and neck, uh, we may have to choose. Or, of course, we may have to consider the argument, which people don't consider, I think, only on ageist grounds, of a Sanders-Warren or a Warren-Sanders ticket. Those are all reasonable questions, but they're not questions we have to answer right now. We've been speaking with D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. We've been talking about the magazine's anti-endorsement of Joe Biden. You can read it now at thenation.com. Thank you, Don. Always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests. Harold Meyerson had our impeachment commentary and reviewed the Democratic debates last night. We also spoke with Senator Sherrod Brown about his new book, Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Thanks to our, our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Coming up tonight at 4 o'clock on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. I'm John Wiener. We're off next week. It's Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening. <laughs>